0: Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, March 5th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. We live in a society that is made up of rules, and there are some pretty crazy rules that are still on the record books In certain states today. So here are are 10 very strange rules that I discovered while doing research on the internet. So it has to be true, right? Because I found it on the internet. (laughs) Here we go. You can't plow a cotton field with an elephant in North Carolina. And now that Barnum Bailey Circus has stopped uh, performing with elephants, there's probably a lot more elephants that are free to, you know, get hired on for a little bit of work here and there. Uh, Theaters in Glendale, California, can show horror films only on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. I'm guessing there's quite a few theaters that are breaking the law in Glendale. In Lehigh, Nebraska, it's against the law to sell donut holes. In Idaho, a citizen is forbidden by law to give another citizen a box of candy that weighs more than 50 pounds. That's why the 49-pound boxes are so popular on Valentine's Day. Yeah, Uh, It's against the law to hunt for whales in Oklahoma. Did I mention this is a law in Oklahoma? Yes. Uh, According to law, no store is allowed to sell a toothbrush on the Sabbath in Providence, Rhode Island, but you can sell toothpaste and mouthwash on the Sabbath. Not exactly sure what the difference is. Well, in New York State, it's illegal to shoot a rabbit from a moving trolley car. (laughs) If the trolley car is stationary, shoot as many rabbits as you want. Uh, In Michigan, it's illegal to put a skunk inside your boss's desk. (laughs) I mean, you'd think it's just common sense, right? Unless you're eager to start collecting unemployment, then maybe you'd be thinking about that. In parts of Alaska, it's illegal to give alcohol to a moose. They have to buy their own, okay? And number 10, every citizen in Kentucky is required by law to take a bath at least once a year. I didn't realize Kentucky was on drought restrictions as well. Amazing. Well, welcome to the new sermon series entitled Wanted, Dead or Alive?, Why Jesus Made Enemies, and today we'll be looking more closely at the place that rules have in our faith. Each week until Easter Sunday, we're going to examine a different story in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus does a wonderful job of making people really, really, really mad at him. This past Wednesday night on Ash Wednesday, we looked at the time that Jesus came back to his hometown in Nazareth. And and if you couldn't make it and want to know more about it, I invite you to go to our church's website, PUMChurch.com, and you can find the sermons link and listen in on that. But today we're going to deal with one of Jesus' numerous run-ins with religious authorities, the Pharisees. Now set the stage. Let me tell you about the three different groups of uh, religious uh, leaders in Jesus' day. First, there were the Sadducees. These were priests that worked in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, They they saw that they were the most conservative of all of the religious groups, and they only saw the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those were the only books of Scripture that were seen as authoritative. That was the law of Moses. Then there were the ascends. The ascends were an ascetic group, meaning they lived away from the rest of society. They abstained from sex. They focused on religious purity. They even baptized themselves numerous times every day. And some scholars think that John the Baptist may have been part of the ascends before he went out and and did his own ministry when Jesus came. The Pharisees, though, were the most prominent group. They were the leaders of the synagogues or the religious community centers. They were lay teachers of the law, meaning they weren't ordained. They weren't priests. They were just lay people that rose up and studied Scripture. They believed that all of the Hebrew uh, texts were authoritative, not just the first five books of Moses. The Pharisees taught that it was important to keep all of the laws of God that were prescribed in the Scriptures. And there were over 600 of them in the Old Testament. It was even believed by some that God would send the Messiah if and only if every person in Israel kept the law for one 24-hour period. If nobody sinned for one day, then God would be so pleased he would send the Messiah. So the Pharisees tried to help people understand the ins and the outs of the law because they wanted God's Messiah to come. The law-related issue on the table from today's reading Was Sabbath observance. Now, in the beginning, says the book of Genesis, God created, and then God rested. Genesis 2 2 says, And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. When Moses brought down the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai, number four dealt with the Sabbath. Exodus twenty, eight to ten remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. It was both a practical and a theological rationale. Not only did God rest after creating the world, but we humans have to rest regularly in order to have healthy lives. If we just go, go, go and never stop, we are going to burn out. So God worked this into the fabric, the rhythm of life. There's even a story in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, where a man was stoned to death because he collected sticks on the Sabbath. I mean, they were really serious about having that pattern of rest and renewal. Well, with the best of intentions, the Pharisees set out to develop a series of explanations on how not to break the Sabbath laws. Just on that one for the Sabbath, there were 39 different categories of what was and was not considered working on the Sabbath. And you can imagine, with 39 different categories, and each category had their own stipulations, it got to be quite confusing. And this is where things started to change. You see, the Sabbath was considered to be, originally by God, a blessing to humankind. A joyous day of rest, to remember God's creation, to renew yourself And to have the energy and the passion that you need in order to be fruitful and productive for the rest of the week. Well, unfortunately, what started out by the Pharisees as an attempt to help eventually became shackles of legalism. And there were so many things one couldn't do that people were so worried and confused about what it is they actually could do on the Sabbath. And that's where Jesus finds himself in today's reading. If you have your Bibles or you want to grab the Pew Bible, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament, and we're beginning at the first verse. One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked some heads of grain, rubbed them in their hands, and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, at first glance, it may seem like the disciples are stealing grain from someone else's fields, but that's not what got them in trouble. Scripture allowed for travelers to pick a few grains and eat them here and there while they were moving. No, this was, it was the picking of the grains and then rubbing them together in their hands that constituted work in the eyes of the Pharisees. It was on the Sabbath. But did you notice who actually picked the grain? It wasn't Jesus. It was his disciples. Nevertheless, Jesus takes the heat for the team. Here's how Jesus responds. Verse 3. Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Now, if you're interested in reading that story in its full uh, context, it comes from 1 Samuel 21. According to biblical scholar Richard Linsky, The bread that's referring to here was the show bread. You see, there were 12 loaves of bread uh, that were set forth on a gold-covered table in the holy place every Sabbath uh, as the tabernacle moved from place to place. One loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, uh, when the bread was removed, when the new set of, uh, I guess this is the original uh, bread ministry that Neil's a part of, right? When the new set of 12 loaves came for the next week of service, the old loaves were then taken aside, and the priests were allowed to eat them. So David, though, comes, and he asks for the bread, the one that had been removed after it had been in service for a whole week. And remember, he wasn't a priest, so he wasn't entitled to have it, he and his companions, but Uh, They were so hungry that the priest, in his compassion, allowed David and his companions to eat that bread that had been reserved only for priests. And so Jesus retells the story, reminding the Pharisees that it's the spirit of the law that sometimes is more important than observing the letter of the law. And remember, the spirit of the Sabbath was to bring joy and blessing to the people, not to become a, a, a burden, a cumbersome burden of regulation after regulation. Luke continues, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. So this isn't just an injured hand. The Bible says that it was withered, which means that it's had years and years of inactivity. The muscles and the nerves had atrophied. They'd stopped working. All that it could do was now just hang limp and useless. It's interesting to note that Luke mentions that it's the man's right hand. Scholar R. Alan Culpepper remarks that in biblical times, the right hand, that was the hand that was used for work, for gesturing, and for greeting people. The left hand, however, was used for, shall we say, performing chores of bodily hygiene, if you know what I mean, right? That hand was not to be presented in public, just the right hand. So this man had lost the use of his good hand, and now he was forced to use his left hand in public, which then added shame to his physical disability. Verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. Even though he knew what they were thinking, Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand here. He got up and he stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? So here's our friends, the scribes and the Pharisees again. They're ready to pounce on Jesus. They're looking for anything that they can use against him. But Jesus knows what they're wanting. He knows what they're trying to do. So he turns the tables and he asks them a question first. He asks them a question of the law. Is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath to save life or destroy it? Now, everyone in the room knew that despite the fact that there are over 600 laws in the Hebrew Scriptures about what you can and can't do, they also had an out clause. And the out clause was that when it came to life or death situations, all rules took a backseat to compassion. So if it meant breaking a rule or saving a person's life or, or, or giving them relief, then that took precedence, compassion over the rules. And Jesus knew this too, and he wanted to see if the leaders would actually say what everyone knew if they would respond to the truth. They don't say a word. They say nothing. Not a single one of them responds. They know Jesus is right in what he's about to do, and it's just killing them inside. Verse 10. After looking around at all of them, he said to him, the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So Jesus says, make a choice. Do good or do evil. Jesus chose to do good. The scribes and the Pharisees, in their inactivity, in their unwillingness to make a choice, they chose evil. Of course, this gets all the religious leaders riled up because Jesus did work on the Sabbath again. I mean, how can he be the Messiah if he can't even keep the basic Sabbath laws that God has handed down for all of them? Now we have to wait a whole other day until everyone might hold the laws uh, for one 24-hour period. And they're ready to start protesting, rioting. They're going to post on social media, hashtag not my Messiah. Once again, Jesus is breaking the Sabbath rules, right? Or did he? If you look at the passage closely, you'll see that Jesus never actually touched the man's hand. Nor did he he even say to the hand, be healed. All he did was tell the man to stretch out his hand. And not even the most rabid Pharisee could call that work on the Sabbath. Maybe that's why they got so upset with Jesus, because he wouldn't fall for their trickery. When I was in seminary, one of my professors said that if we really want to get the full force and power of Scripture, we need to place ourselves in the position of the least likable characters. So if we're going to use that logic, how are we like the Pharisees? Christians have, unfortunately, garnered quite a reputation for being judgmental in the eyes of the world around us. I dare say it happens both within and outside of the community of faith. Pick any hot topic in Christianity today, war and peace, sexual orientation, gender orientation, abortion, reproductive rights, immigration, the military. Most Christians have an opinion and uh, aren't afraid to share it. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is when those issues become the lens by which the gospel is communicated. Whatever, whatever, When we sacrifice grace and mercy of Christ Jesus for one particular issue, however right we think we are, then we are becoming like the Pharisees. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. He once said this, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, Charity that means we have to be united on the most important issues, the essentials. And you know what Wesley listed as the essentials of the Christian faith? One, believing in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And second, the centrality of the Bible in our lives. That was it. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and and Scripture. Everything else, including all those topics that I just mentioned earlier, was considered non-essential. It doesn't mean they're not important. It just means they're not the most essential. So we each can have our own opinions about these things, and that's okay. That's the liberty part. As long as, and this is the part we have to hear, as long as we do everything in a spirit of love and charity. So we may have differing beliefs on issues that we hold near and dear to us, And that's fine, and we can share those with each other as long as we do with a spirit of love, as long as we treat each other and those we come across with respect and grace. Period. Former United Methodist pastor Fred Craddock tells this troubling but true story from the mid-1900s. I'll be reading his words. The first little church I served was in the eastern Tennessee hills, not too far from Oak Ridge. When Oak Ridge began to boom with the atomic energy, that little tiny town became a booming city just overnight. Every hill, valley, and shady grove had recreational vehicles and trucks and things like that, and people came in from everywhere and pitched their tents and lived in wagons, workers with hard hats with their families and children paddling around in the mud in those trailer parks. They lived in everything temporarily just to do their jobs. Our church was not far away. We had a beautiful little church, white frame building. At that time, it was 112 years old. The church had an organ in its corner, with which, one, which, which one of the young fellows had to, to pump it while Miss Lois played it. The church had beautifully decorated chimneys, caressing lamps all around the walls, and every pew in this little church was hewn, hand-hewn from a giant poplar tree. After church one Sunday morning, I asked the leaders to stay, and I said to them, "Uh, now we need to launch a calling campaign and an invitational campaign and all those trailer parks to invite those people to our church. Oh, uh, pastor, I I don't know, said one of them. "I I don't think they'd fit in here. You know, they're just here temporarily, just construction people. They'll be leaving pretty soon. Well, maybe, but we ought to invite them, I said, you know, to make them feel at home. So we argued about it, and time ran out, and we said we would vote next Sunday. Well, next Sunday, we all sat down after the service. I move, said one of them, I move that in order to be a member of this church, you must own property in the county. I second that, said another voice, and it passed. I voted against it, but they reminded me I was just a kid preacher, and I didn't have a vote, so it passed. When we moved back to these parts, I took my wife to see that little church. Because I told her that painful, painful story. The roads have changed. The interstate goes through that part of the county, so I had a hard time finding it, but I finally did. And I found the state road, and then the county road, and then the little gravel road. And there, back among the pines, was that white building shining. But it was different. The parking lot was full, full of motorcycles and trucks and cars parked there, and out in front on a great big sign barbecue all you can eat. It's now a restaurant. So we went inside. The pews are back against the wall. They have electric lights now. The organ is pushed over into the corner. There are all these aluminum and plastic tables and people sitting there eating barbecue pork and chicken and ribs, all kinds of people. I mean, all kinds of people. And I said to my wife, Nellie, boy, it's a good thing this still isn't a church. Otherwise, none of these people could be here. This week in my study and preparation, I saw it best put this way. As we try to follow Jesus, are we becoming more free to love others or more constrained by our religious rules? One last story. This comes from Anthony DeMello in his wonderful book, Uh, Taking Flight. He writes, Among the Jews, the observance of the Sabbath, the day of the Lord, was generally a thing of joy. But too many rabbis kept issuing one injunction after another. How exactly it was to be observed and what sort of activity was to be followed until some people felt they could hardly move during the Sabbath for fear that some regulation or another might be transgressed. The Baal Shem, son of Eliezer, gave much thought to this matter. One night he had a dream. An angel took him up to heaven and showed him two thrones placed far above all others. For whom are these reserved, he asked. For you, was the answer, if you make use of your intelligence. And the second, for a man whose name and address is now being written down and given to you. He was then taken to the deepest spot in hell and shown two vacant seats. For whom are these prepared, he asked. For you, the answer came, if you do not make use of your intelligence. And for the man whose name and address are being written down for you. In his dream... Baal Shem visited the man who was to be his companion in paradise. He found him living among the Gentiles, quite ignorant of Jewish customs. And on the Sabbath, he would give a banquet in which there was a lot of merrymaking and to which all his Gentile neighbors were invited. When Baal Shem asked him why he held this banquet, the man replied, I recall that in my childhood, my parents taught me that the Sabbath was a day of rest and for rejoicing. So on Sundays, my mother made the most succulent meals at which we sang and danced and made merry, and so I do the same for my friends and my neighbors. Baal Shem attempted to instruct the man in the ways of religion, for he had been born a Jew, but evidently was quite ignorant of all the rabbinical prescriptions. But Baal Shem was struck dumb when he realized that the man's joy in the Sabbath would be marred if he was made aware of his shortcomings." Baal Shem in his dream then went to the home of his companion in hell. He found the man to be a strict observer of the law, always apprehensive lest his conduct should not be correct. The poor man spent each Sabbath day in a scrupulous tension as if he were sitting on hot coals. When Baal Shem attempted to upbraid him for his slavery to the law, the power of speech was taken from him. He realized that the man would never understand that he could do wrong by fulfilling religious laws. Thanks to this revelation given to him in the form of the dream, the Baal Shem Tov evolved a new system of obedience and observance, where God is worshipped from joy, which comes from the heart. Friends, it's easy for us to look down upon the Pharisees and to think, what a bunch of hypocrites they were, right? But if we're honest, we have to admit that we too are in some ways like them wanting to uphold the laws of faith as good Christian men and women, and yet we just might discover that we're so focused more on what we should or shouldn't do and less on the One who gave us the laws that we might have a life of joy and purpose. I mean, that's part of just being human, right? None of us are perfect. So if we choose to spend our energy being the theological police, then we'll find we're actually in conflict with what it means to be following Jesus. So, my brothers and sisters... Will we respond like the Pharisees did with anger and resentment, or will we take a different approach? As we begin this uh, journey through the season of Lent, as we walk with the Master, we're going to be confronted with aspects and elements of our own lives that we might not care to see or hear about. May we be able to hear God speak to each one of us individually, and may we not be afraid of what comes our way. For underneath everything that Jesus says, even those statements that come across as harsh and painful, even those are always, always undergirded with love and grace. Thanks be to God for our Savior that loves us so much not to leave us where we are. Amen.